The following program may contain explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 6th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pasca. As the nation collectively attempts to return the salute from our brave commander-in-chief who demonstrated strength in between gasps of breath and resilience from a virus he says isn't that bad, it is easy to forget that the states also have vital interests. And governors of those states will make proclamations and decrees that often reverberate beyond their borders. Case in point, Governor Phil Murphy of New Jersey making such a proclamation. The 2020 bear hunt, already limited, by the way, to a few days in October and December and pursuant to my 2018 executive order not permitted on state lands, will be the last bear hunt under my administration. No, no, that wasn't it. It was, it was a local issue, but of national importance. Yes, Halloween is on. No, 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 no. I'm talking about a different parade of ghouls. Oh, yeah, here is the relevant material. The actions leading up to and during this event have put lives at risk. The event was President Trump attending that fundraiser at his golf club in Bedminster after Hope Hicks, who the president had been in contact with, had been confirmed positive. Hours after the Bedminster event, the president tested positive himself, meaning all 206 attendees and 19 staff members need to quarantine. Will they? Well, Murphy called it a race against the clock, wished Trump well, but cited his, quote, failure of leadership. And then Murphy detailed some of the specific state protocols that Trump may have violated. We have been in touch, in touch since Friday morning with the White House. Uh, All of this remains a work in progress. Um, And guidelines that were violated as described to us, potential guidelines were too many people indoors. Uh, I don't think there was an outdoor uh, guideline violated to the best of our knowledge, but that's to the best of my knowledge. Uh, But there may well have been exceeding capacity inside. There's been some discussion that there was buffet-like Uh, food setups. The buffets are prohibited in our state. The garden state, but not the garden salad bar state. Unsaid was the very act of traveling to New Jersey from recently being in a state that was afflicted by COVID. Under New Jersey rules, anyone who travels to New Jersey from Minnesota, where the president was a day before, is supposed to quarantine for two weeks before traveling freely in Freehold or elsewhere in New Jersey. The governor detailed the difficulties that Trump and his carelessness have visited upon his state, with officials working off lists trying to contact everyone at the event, some of whom chafe, like a buffet dish, at the implication that the president did nothing wrong. It's hard to get answers. I might suggest a resource. The comedian and former SNL cast member Joe Piscopo attended the event and has been on air three hours a day, five days a week, talking about it ever since. He, I'm sure he raised a lot of money yesterday, but it was more so to say thank you because there were some members of the club there. They were his friends there, and he wanted to say thank you, and he went out of his way to come all the way up. That was Piscopo on the Friday during his morning drive radio program on 970 The Answer. If 970 is the answer, I think the question must be, what does Stockholm Syndrome sound like? I don't want to diminish this, how, vi- how how dangerous this virus is, but if you get it, it's not the death knell. 99% of those who get the virus, it, they don't even, it just goes away. It's asymptomatic. 
Piscopo then invited on the show Dr. Stephen Greer, who has been featured extensively on the One America News Network touting hydroxychloroquine. On Piscopo's show, Greer said this. I think President Trump's situation is this. He's asymptomatic. As I said earlier, I think it's highly likely it's a, basically a false positive. Okay. Then we had a weekend worth of evidence that was contrary to everything that was being heard on the Piscopo show. So Joe came back on Monday painting the president as a profile in courage. The president, you could see when he first, how, how he got better on camera. And I think it was great to see. I, I uh, was surprised at pleasantly so that to see the president uh, be that honest, you know, come out and uh, and just kind of really with no makeup on or anything, just boom, went right before the, uh, you know, an iPhone or something. And they, they just posted that out, that first video from Walter Reed. And then, and then the second one, and he's getting stronger and stronger. You could hear it in his voice. And um, and he looks looks like, you know, it's such an insidious virus. You don't know what, God forbid, can happen, but it looks like he's on his way to recovery. Good luck, New Jersey officials, as you wade into that mode of thinking and attempt to forensically map out the contacts, interactions, and exposure among a population that might be a wee bit hostile to a few of the foundations of your very project. It is quite a smorgasbord of self-justification and unfalsifiable thinking. A buffet of cultism, if you will, and we all know the dangers of buffets. On the show today, I spiel about understanding Donald Trump and in turn, understanding yourself. Hmm. But first, Jeffrey Tubin has a quite thorough new book out that looks back at the Mueller investigation. It's pretty upfront about the shortcomings of what was sold as a comeuppance for the president. Actually, having read the book, I drew harsher conclusions about Mueller than I had considered beforehand. But as you'll hear in this conversation that's coming up, I probably drew harsher conclusions than Tubin himself. Still, I found it an interesting talk. My end, I should tell you, was conducted not into this gorgeous microphone, but via a computer interface. It is how we communicate now. So the Mueller investigation, zoom in with Tubin up next. During the Mueller investigation, the proceedings took on a mystical, almost religious quality. And it was an Old Testament, angry God religious quality where deliverance would be granted to the true believers. Then after the Mueller report came out, the report itself had a different kind, a different sheen of mysticism to it. It was almost like Obi-Wan Kenobi, where Mueller was saying, I can't do this for myself, but you, you Republicans in the Senate, I have given you the tools to take the step. Well, that was frustrating to a lot of us. And now in a new book by Jeffrey Tubin, it's really laid bare the deficiencies of the Mueller report. True crimes and misdemeanors, the investigation of Donald Trump, Jeff Tubin, who is who you know from CNN and the New Yorker, is the author. Thanks for coming back on, Jeff. Hi, Mike. Hi. Could you just give me your thoughts on how the Mueller report was going while the Mueller report was being written and no leaks coming out? It was, it was an extraordinary uh, act of uh, restraint and discipline on the part of the Mueller himself and, and his staff that they simply refused to engage with the modern media during the investigation, which is really without precedent for any part of the government, um, in, in, in certainly in my experiences as, as a journalist. And um, I, I think that 
contributed to the mystique which you described the the, the fact that he was operating in silence um, led people on both the left and the right to affix their fantasies and nightmares on Mueller, both of which turned out to be wrong. Yes, it was the empty vessel. And during the no-leak period, uh, at least the left, or I, I maybe even think much of the center, imbued Mueller, because the Mueller we knew him, imbued him with these qualities uh, that I don't know if any human could have. And the longer he was silent, the bigger it grew. To the point when when the report came out, I wonder if there was any chance that it could live up to the expectations. Well, I, I, you know, and this is where I think, I mean, just to answer your question directly, uh, almost there was almost no way it, it could have lived up to those expectations. But I think those expectations were flawed from the outset, that um, the, the people who had you know, the Robert Mueller action figures who were wearing the Mueller right. time t-shirts um, were projecting their loathing of Trump onto their hopes for Mueller, but that was never going to be how Mueller conducted his investigation. Now, I think as it turned out, um, he, he and, and I think those were unrealistic expectations. As I write in the book, I think he disappointed even realistic expectations in a couple of important important ways. But the I, the, the the Mueller as savior narrative uh, was never going to be uh, fulfilled by by Mueller himself. Right. And as you lay out really interestingly in the book, it was both a problem of not just product, um, what he didn't recommend or what he didn't look into, but also process in a way that I think during the investigation, given Mueller's reputation, I think that that's legitimately surprising. So not the Mueller action figure cottage industry that grew up around uh, Mueller delivering us from evil. But I do think a lot of people who worked with him and uh, regarded him extremely highly, if they looked at the report and they looked at how he went, not just what he defined as what is within my purview, but how he went about pursuing that which was in his purview, I think a lot of them in a moment of honesty would find it surprising and lacking, don't you? I I do, although, you know, I, I... I think it is important to point out um, how good and effective significant parts of the Mueller investigation were. Uh, As you know from reading the book, I I do have significant criticisms of Mueller, but I also have tremendous admiration for how uh, parts of that investigation were were conducted. Uh, You know, we know the details about how Russia... Uh, sought and succeeded in influencing the 2016 election because of what Mueller revealed. We uh, know the details of how the president obstructed justice because of the thoroughness of Mueller's investigation. Now, there the, he he didn't you know complete the investigation as far as I'm concerned, but uh, but I do think it's important to point out that um, there were real successes in that investigation, including you know, the prosecutions of Michael Flynn, of Paul Manafort, of Rick Gates. Um, uh, so so you know, I, I, I don't want 
um, to come off, and I don't think my book comes off as as a you know scathing indictment of Mueller. I think there were mistakes that he made. Robert Mueller is someone who has dedicated his life to American institutions, whether it is the Marine Corps or the Justice Department or the FBI. And he had tremendous faith in those institutions. And I think the limitations and failures of his investigations came from an undue reliance on the good faith and decency of those institutions, especially the Justice Department. And the White House, to a certain extent, and his failure to issue a grand jury subpoena for Donald Trump to get his testimony on the record was a failure that I think was bred from his respect for the office of the presidency and also his anxiousness to get the investigation done in a what he regarded as a reasonable period of time. His failure to articulate in his report that the president had committed the crime of obstruction of justice I think was a reflection of his undue confidence in the integrity, particularly of this William Barr Justice Department. That I think was a major, major failure. Uh, but I think one that grew out of Mueller's uh, respect for and faith in the Department of Justice. So here he is immersed in evidence that the executive branch is acting amorally is acting in a way that weakens the institution, maybe to the point of serious stress upon it going forward. He's immersed in details of how Trump and his associates will really stop at nothing to win an argument or win the point or win the day or deny history. I mean, he knows this more than anyone. It's apparent to him. And yet he still will not act um, or chooses not to act in the maximalist possible way out of deference for the institution, or perhaps out of the belief that no one would dare act in a way that would um, just lie about the report, when all he's been doing is chronicling how lying is like breathing to the people he's investigating. Isn't that a failure to recognize the underlying reality and the stakes? It, 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 it is a flaw and it is a failing. And, and I, I certainly call him out on it. I, I don't think you characterize exactly the correct way how he saw what he discovered. I think what he discovered was that, that there was misconduct by the president. And I think there was criminal behavior by the president, criminal obstruction of justice. However, he saw those acts as discrete problems of, of individuals, of Michael Flynn, of Donald Trump, of Paul Manafort. He did not see the pervasiveness of Trump's ethics and lack thereof in the Justice Department. In particular, um, he did not see how William Barr had become not the people's lawyer, but the president's personal advocate. And I think that was a tremendous failure. The point I'm sort of pushing back against it is yeah. he didn't see the executive branch as a wash in criminality. He saw, and, and maybe he was wrong not to see it, he saw discrete misbehavior that he thought was confined, and I don't think he realized how deep the rot was. Maybe it was that Mueller, as an institutionalist and a person who believes in what the right thing is and should be, 
really actually didn't even recognize what Barr was doing and what was right there before him. And I think, I mean, you document this, how surprised he was by how Barr played him, played the public airing of the document afterwards. And the fact that he's surprised, I think, tells me something about just his mindset in general. What do you think? I think you are you are much more right than wrong in, in that assessment. That's all I ever strive to be. Well, I, no, I, and, and and I think the the um, you know, and there's a personal dimension to this too. You know, Mueller was in his seventies, and he was a, you know, and he had worked with William Barr in. Barr's first go-round as attorney general during the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, which was a different time in America. And, and I fault myself here. I think many of us didn't realize what a political animal William Barr has always been. And uh, when he was named to succeed Jeff Sessions, I think many of us made um, the facile analogy of, well, he's you know, from the George Herbert Walker Bush administration, that was a different time. That was a less contentious, more, um, you know, in, in more, more uh, sort of people had more respect for institutions. And we didn't look hard enough at uh, what Barr was then and certainly what he had become. And I don't think Mueller realized as much. Uh, how Barr had evolved and how deep the rot was that Trump had wrought in the executive branch. And I think that led to, you know, his, as you put it, being played by Barr in, in the release of the report. And it led Mueller not even to offer the kind of meaningful public protest that he could have because he saw himself as what he was, which was a subordinate within the Justice Department. That, right. to me, was uh, more, in many respects, as revealing uh, as the, the conduct that got Mueller played, the fact that he sort of sat there and took it. There are many choices that a reasonable person could choose either way. But once you make that choice, uh, you're locked in and you cast aside all the implications of the choice you didn't make. And it seems to me that Mueller pretty consistently made the choice within the realm of uh, we could be aggressive or we could, I, I would say, defer and let other entities invested with power, like, say, the Senate, let them ultimately make the choice. Consistently, he deferred. And that was part of the reason why the report in and of itself didn't force anyone's hand to take action. I think that's a little too harsh. Frankly, Go ahead. Mike. Tell me, I, tell I, me. I, well, like when you look at um, the first part of the report, and you look at the depth of his investigation of what went on in the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg and the, and, and the social media effort on behalf of the Trump campaign by, uh, you know, the, the, the oligarch known as Putin's chef. When you look at the detail of his investigation of um, how the hacking took place by the, by the R Russian military intelligence and how Mueller uh, found out that the hacking was ramped up on the very day that Trump said, Russia, if you're listening, go find the emails. I mean, that was a really superb investigation and deeply damning about both Russia and about Trump's lies about what Russia did. So I don't think there was this sort of institutional reluctance. I, I think if you look at how they pursued successfully 
and got the testimony of Don McGahn, the White House counsel, who was really the crucial figure in the obstruction of justice investigation, that was a great piece of prosecutorial lawyering. So I don't think to portray Mueller as someone who deferred in all circumstances uh, is fair or correct. I mean, I, as, as I say, I think on the subpoena issue and on how the report was written on obstruction of justice, I, I am full of criticism. But I don't think, you know, everything he did was deferential to the executive branch. Did you come to any conclusions about reform or anything about the institution of the special prosecutor? I do think that the independent counsel, which was uh, the kind of prosecutor that, that Lawrence Walsh was, who I worked for as a prosecutor, and uh, Starr was, I think that model, it's good that it's gone. I, I think that level of independence is not healthy. And that level of the duration of those investigations, uh, they were just too long and too aggressive and, and too, too intrusive. You know, I don't think the structure of the Mueller office, in terms of being part of the Justice Department, was necessarily flawed. And, and, and I do think Rod Rosenstein deserves credit for not interfering with Mueller's investigation, notwithstanding the fact that the president was browbeating Rosenstein to do it. You know, I I think the the flaws were in the individuals involved, in Mueller himself, not in the structure. So I don't think in future presidential scandals, we need a different structure. I think different prosecutors will make different judgments, and I hope they'll make some choices that are as good that Mueller makes and and some that will be better. So you've written about OJ, you've written about Clinton Lewinsky, you've written, you you write about important legal, a, a lot of things, but important legal moments in American history. Do you think this one will obtain or recede? It will seem bigger in history because the Trump presidency will seem like such a criminal enterprise. I mean, I, I, I think... We don't know, even today, with all the journalistic and law enforcement attention that Trump has received, just how corrupt this president is. And I think, you know, the the release of the tax returns recently is just giving us a hint. The the Trump presidency, I think, is so aberrational in um, the, the way this president has behaved that I think, you know, as historians begin to excavate you know, what Donald Trump did in the White House. Um, This will be seen as part of a pattern of misconduct that really is uh, or was in many respects inconceivable, That, that, that a president could operate the way this president has entirely for self-interest without regard to norms, to laws, even criminal laws. Uh, I, I think that we're only really beginning to, to excavate uh, what has been going on. And I think both the, the Russia and the Ukraine investigations will be seen as part of a bigger pattern that even for someone like me, who's, you know, I think a pretty worldly person and experienced in the, you know, in, in, in these sorts of matters, you know, was, was literally inconceivable when Trump took office. 
Jeffrey Tubin is chief legal analyst at CNN, staff writer for The New Yorker, and his book is True Crimes and Misdemeanors, The Investigation of Donald Trump. Thank you, Jeffrey. Thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. I've always said that every presidential election could be broken down into each campaign advancing one simple contrast. Recent examples. Bush beats Kerry on the idea of I am strong and he is weak. Obama beats McCain on I am new, he is old. He beats Romney on I am you and he is them. And then Hillary tries to win on I am competent, he is not. But Trump beat her on my enemies are your enemies. And by the way, the enemy included her. That's who Trump is. That's what Trump says. That's what Trump is selling. The white nationalism, the rudeness, the ignorance. His is a presidency of shared enemies. That's all it is. He doesn't feel your pain or talk about arcs of history bending. He is about telling his people, and you're invited to be one of his people, but if not, he doesn't much care. He's about broadcasting the fact that you and he have the same enemies. The liberals, ISIS, the people who ruin the economy. So here's how COVID fits, or doesn't. Trump has trouble identifying COVID as the enemy. Sure, there's all the, I call it the invisible enemy. But for all that, it's not ISIS, it's not the deep state, it's not China. It's hard to demonize an enemy without a face, without a body. It is invisible, after all. ISIS has a face. Crime, which he is an enemy of, crime has a face. When his supporters close their eyes, you can believe that they are envisioning a very specific kind of face representing crime. Even things as abstract as trade deals have a face. It's always the stupid people who stupidly negotiated before the very smart Donald Trump came in. But COVID's just a spheroid with some nodules coming off. It is a bad enemy for Trump. This is why he calls it the China virus, so that you maybe think of a Chinese person. Maybe Xi Jinping, maybe just a Chinese person. The virus is impervious to his attempts to turn it into an enemy, and that's made worse since the enemy seems to be winning. So it's not so much that this is a huge issue that Americans care about and he's not doing well on the issue. I mean, the reason, one reason that he is overmatched and not doing well is he doesn't know how to deal with an issue like this. There is no playbook for him and he has a very, very narrow playbook, which is turn everything into an enemy, point a finger at it, give it a hurtful nickname, tweet some ugly memes about it. So when someone else falls ill, that is a phenomenon he knows what to do with. He pounces. He did exactly that to Hillary Clinton when she had pneumonia. But here's a woman. She's supposed to fight all of these different things. And she can't make it 15 feet to her car. Give me a break. Give me a break. And then he does what in comedy is called an act out. In this case, a sad little stumbly pantomime. His crowd loves it. But then when it comes to his own health, and when it comes to the health of Americans, and when the opponent is a nameless, faceless virus, he flails, and he cuts videos starring his own heroic face, but they're not working. Why? Because it's a bad enemy. But what about us? Fox, flummoxed with how to handle their spiritual lodestar's recent convalescence, has been a bit adrift. 
They know one thing they could do is point their fingers at some quasi-public figures who have taken glee in Trump's troubles. I myself have engaged in the very couched expression of best wishes, a version of which Chuck Todd engages in here. Wish President Trump, the First Lady, and all Americans have been impacted by the coronavirus a speedy and full recovery. And we'll be back next week, because if it's Sunday, it's Meet the Press. Yes. Yes, sure, of course. Insofar as Trump is within the broader category of Americans, and since we care about Americans, well then, Godspeed. You know, we hope humans recover. As a human, fine, we won't exempt him from our expression of goodwill. Like I say, I did this too on the show the other day. But dig a little deeper, ever so slightly deeper. You do not need a nasopharyngeal swab to detect it. That's how shallow and close to the surface it is. What's going on is schadenfreude, what the Germans call schadenfreude. Although given how seriously the Germans have taken COVID, they must be confused by our lax attitudes. It's less a pleasure in the pain of others and more a logical consequence. It would be confusing to them if the president didn't have them as confusing as a mathematical equation without an equal sign in it. But are we being bad people if we derive some pleasure or even significant pleasure in Donald Trump's diagnosis? Now, you might not care. You might say, glad, glad, glad it happened. Screw him. Or you might, like I did a little bit, couch your delight in terms of, well, it's a comeuppance. It's deserved. What does he expect? And since that feeling brings pleasure, I was right. He was wrong. That is still schadenfreude. Or you may be saying, well, as a person, it gives me no pleasure that he has this. But as a leader who didn't lead, he certainly deserves some discomfort. Maybe this will set him straight, you thought, for about eight minutes back then. Here's what I give to you. I give to you a simple test so that you can tell if you're really experiencing schadenfreude. And even if you are, if it's more a cruelty-based schadenfreude or a practical schadenfreude. Yes, that was the, the worst Sandra Bullock movie ever, Practical Schadenfreude. Sandra Bullock, by the way, fluent in German. Okay, that is true. If you're experiencing a more revenge-based endorphin rush, you will think one way. If you have, you know, some pleasure in what Trump is experiencing, but it's more based in your genuine compassion for those who suffered there will be another phenomenon that you can explore. And I ask you to do this. Imagine this scenario. Imagine that Trump didn't get COVID a couple days ago. Imagine that Trump, however, does get COVID on February 1st, could be January 22nd, but let's say February 1st, 2021. There's still no cure for it then. Feb 1, 2021, Donald Trump has COVID. Now, remember or realize Donald Trump is in one of two positions then. He's either the former president of the United States who oversaw our ramshackle COVID response and then came down with COVID, or he is still our current president elected to a second term who finds himself infected with the disease. Do you have a different attitude towards each? If Trump were still president, I would want COVID to at least shock him into seriousness or maybe remove him from the chessboard because his decisions have been and presumably will continue to be hurtful, horrible, maybe deadly to thousands and thousands of his and my countrymen. But if he's ex-president, then no. I might feel a little frisson of I told you so witness, but I wouldn't wish destruction on the man. I'd much rather he survive and take note what it does to him, what it does to his body. Maybe 
hope for something of an insight, whatever Donald Trump's version of that is. And then I'd still look forward to the various investigative authorities doing stuff to him in what should be a busy post-presidential docket. But it's not really about, in that case, the suffering of one man. It's about the suffering of hundreds of thousands and what the removal of or the continued influence of one man might say about the course of the suffering and the virus. So either COVID as retribution, in which case I'm uninterested, or COVID as prophylaxis, in which case I'm listening. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader is a GIST producer. It turns out his whole bear hunting schedule has been upended. Thanks, Phil. Margaret Kelly produces the GIST. She does so by drawing on her life experience, which began, as she will tell you, during a crazy time period. It was a wacky time in the 80s, but I thought it was a nice time. Geraldo was there. Regis. Regis was hanging. You know, Mayor Giuliani was about to clean up the city. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She imagines we haven't seen this amount of politician to SNL contagion since Tim Kazarinski hosted a $500 a plate dinner for Dale Bumpers. The gist could have gone with since Gary Kroger phone banked for Dan Rostenkowski. These are the choices we make. Umpru Depru Dupru, and thanks for listening.